You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Next on Washington Post Live. This is where we take a good look at rising changemakers, some young people who have caught our eye from culture to Capitol Hill, and basically everywhere in between. I'm Dave Jorgensen, a relatively young person here at The Post and senior video producer. And I'm speaking of the, excuse me, speaking of the Capitol Hill, last Tuesday, my guest testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee about issues with the concert ticket system. Joining me now are two members from the soul pop band, Lawrence, Clyde Lawrence and Jordan Cohen. Clyde Jordan, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks for having us. Hey, uh, so excited to talk to you all. I have, I have plenty of questions, so we're going to get right to it. And I'm going to start Sweet. with you, Clyde. Uh, one of the You are one of the lead singers and songwriters of the band Lawrence. And in your opening remarks to the Senate, you said, ever since we started touring, we noticed what felt like lopsided deal mechanics in certain aspects of the live music industry. So that's a lot right there. I want, I want to just start with that and have you explain briefly what's going on with Ticketmaster and Live Nation and how it came to your attention. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that, you know, as I said in the testimony, ever since we started touring about uh, six or seven years ago, Jordan and I were the ones after the show every night, um, you know, backstage settling up the show, which means collecting the settlement sheet and therefore collecting the money and going over that settlement sheet that kind of outlines how the profits shake out and how the band gets their pay. And obviously I can talk about the nuances of that for hours but we basically started realizing that there were certain aspects of the ways that the deals are structured and then also certain aspects of the ways the deals are put into practice as far as um what kinds of costs are allowed to be deducted from the show's gross and so on and so forth things some things that are really obvious and stick out like a sore thumb some things that once you realize the dynamics of the industry are a little more nuanced but we just started realizing that the deck is sort of stacked against artists, especially small and mid-sized artists in a number of ways. Um, and in that sense, we're not talking about, oh, the amount of money they're making. Obviously, we know that if you are a really small artist, there's not as much money in the pot. But we're really talking about the percentage of the pie of a given show that an artist is coming away with. So we realized that early on and we've been talking about it with each other and our bandmates and other artists and even people working at venues and promoters for quite some time and now with all this attention on you know a company like live nation Ticketmaster, we kind of see all of this interest from the public about understanding exactly what we mean when we say those things that's great and uh clyde if i'm un to understand your your band's website correctly uh you're a big Catan fan is that is that correct? That is that is absolutely correct. I'm a big uh, I'm a big Settlers of Catan fan. So much so actually that when I was writing, uh, when all this Ticketmaster stuff broke, and I uh, had the idea to write this op-ed that ended up in the New York Times, um, I was actually in Malta for the cheering my friend on in the Settlers of Catan World Championship. So I literally wrote the first draft of that op-ed while while. <laughs> watching the world guitar championship i didn't even expect that level it said you were a big time player but i didn't know if it, i didn't know it was to that level so that's very helpful and maybe will be helpful in my follow-up question for you is there any way you can explain this in terms of Catan? is there like a, a is there a, some kind of analogy we can draw <laughs> yeah um I, I i have to think about the best the best uh way to do it but i think that i think that it has something to do with you know understanding that i don't know i want to i want to think of the perfect we'll analogy. Get back to you. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I I'm want gonna, you to I'm, have that, and I know it matters to you. So we'll we'll circle back, yeah, and when he, when it hits you, describe it. Okay, yeah, just exactly. like a game. We'll, it'll be your turn soon, so we'll get back to you. Uh, and Jordan, in the meantime, <laughs> yeah, you are uh, the saxophone sure. player, and uh, yeah, you are the saxophone player and uh, tour manager of the band as well. So, how has the band been affected by Live Nation? Can you go into it more from the perspective as you know, someone that's both in the band and the tour manager? Yeah, I mean, I think like an important thing to just make note of uh, off the jump is that we actually like don't really consider Live Nation specifically to be like this evil enemy to artists um, and in our experience it's more that like there are kind of these industry standards that have been defined um, by mostly live nation as kind of the biggest player in this but across the board most promoters and most venues even the ones that aren't run and owned by live nation kind of at this point are like functioning under the same rules and offering the same deals and the experiences are quite similar no matter where you go. Um, but as Clyde's saying, like most, the the clearest example of how we feel it to be unfair is just in the like small nuances of the deals um, that were being offered. And I think like, again, like a really exciting part of what we are kind of doing and speaking on is that we don't necessarily think Live Nation needs to be broken apart or the government needs to get involved or we, we're not prescribing anything. And for us, it's more that we have these small little things that can be adjusted to kind of make the system more fair. So for example, like one of the clear things that we like to shed light on that we noticed as artists, as tour managers on day one, is that one of our big um, kind of revenue streams on tour is through our merch sales. And there's kind of been this industry standard that's been set that are that venues and promoters are entitled to a pretty healthy cut of your merch sales. Um, we we often see 20, 25% of gross revenue on tour going to Live Nation or going to the promoter of that show. Um, and the reason that they say that that's fair, which I actually think is kind of sound logic, is they're saying, well, we're offering you real estate and retail space to conduct your retail business therefore we're acting as kind of a landlord and you should pay us rent for your space which i think is totally fair and like a a good argument but then the counter that we always like to say and we actually say this at one in the morning when we're uh handling the the, the show's finances is okay if that's true then why is it that all of your ancillary revenues like your bar and your food and your parking and your co-check, we're the ones providing you all of the customers for that. So why are we not being cut in on, you know, with that same logic, if you're the retail space, okay, well, we're providing the customers. So shouldn't we be getting a cut of that? So, I mean, I know that's kind of a roundabout way of saying like, it's not exactly the experiences with Live Nation specifically, as much as it's the experiences with the industry standards that have been kind of set by companies such as Live Nation. I think that's a really good way to set it up because you, know, I, you just mentioned just now, but I think you mentioned in a previous interview too, like individuals you'd worked with at Live Nation, like your reps and certain people have been great to work with, but it, there's just this whole like, economy that seems to have been created that's- uh, Absolutely. That hasn't really been addressed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really I, like I an interesting- oh, Go ahead, no, please go ahead. I, know, I was just gonna say, it's really interesting, you know, on a night to night basis, when we're talking with these employees, by the end of our conversations, most of the time, 
the the on the ground boots on the ground employees of live nation are like yeah we agree with you a lot of these things aren't exactly fair but it's not my decision i'm just you know the employee of this company following following the rules here yeah i think one thing that's interesting is uh at least from my perspective it seems like this is a relatively new thing to artists and bands and, and concerts in general and just how this works um <laughs> About a decade ago, this is a whole weird little side story, but I, I worked as an intern at a ticketing company in LA mm. and it was run by Jared Leto's band. Uh, and uh, it was the same concept of like merch and tickets and they were trying to wrap it all up into one. And even then it was like, well, what are we doing here? What's the point? And the, the idea, at least then, was we're trying to make sure the artists get more money out of this, but it seems to have turned into something bigger and, and less easy to control. Would you say that's kind of true, Clyde or Jordan, either or? It's hard to say. I mean, Jordan and I have never toured in an era before the Live Nation Ticketmaster merger that occurred in 2010, which is sort of seen as mm -hmm. a big um, sort of landmark point on the timeline. But um, so it's it's not really art. We're not historians on this stuff. And certainly I think if you talk to friends that were touring back in the 90s or the 80s or whenever, or the early 2000s, I think Ticketmaster fees were also high then. Um, mm -hmm. There was all kinds of, you know, things for artists to complain about then too. So I don't, I don't, I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable saying, hey, ever since the Live Nation Ticketmaster merger, um, there it went from having no problems to all these problems. I think that like there are some dynamics that are created by Live Nation and Ticketmaster being the same entity, and particularly by Live Nation also being the same entity that owns so many venues, um, that creates some like new, interesting, unique dynamics. But like understanding how this relates to the way it used to be is less our expertise and frankly less our focus than saying, hey, imagine, you know, we entered into the music industry and here are the things that we feel are a little unfair regardless of how long they've been happening. Let's see if we can all come together mm -hmm. on some solutions. Well, I appreciate that in that, you know, in your testimonies, you both have you've addressed it as this complex issue, but you're able to address the the, the specific problems that, that need to be talked about. And uh, part of that uh, whole ordeal last week was it, it's a bipartisan uh, sort of effort that's happening at the moment. Uh, I think it was Senator Mike Lee, a Republican from Utah, who said a sentence I never thought I'd ever hear, which was, I think Swifties have figured something out. They're very good at getting their message across. <laughs> um, so can you talk to me a little bit, Clyde, about uh, you know how young people or you know Gen Z, millennials, whoever, are being credited with bringing this issue to the forefront, so people like uh, you know Senator Lee could say statements like that, and it gets uh, bipartisan attention. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know young people, especially avid fans, fan communities, are able to like bring around a groundswell of like united public support in a given thing. So, you know. Case in point, even if some of the issues that Jordan and I have with these music industry standards have uh, are only tangentially related to the specific instance of uh, Taylor Swift's tour uh, on sale going awry, um, much less only even in some ways being tangentially related to the Live Nation Ticketmaster merger, the fact that um, a group of really passionate fans are able to 
bring about public attention, demand change in any number of different ways, and then have it at the entire U.S. Senate and maybe you know, about the justice or whatever, um, are all paying attention and focused on making change and therefore giving us a platform to talk about issues that we think are important that are related even if they're not exactly the same is um a really interesting interesting thing certainly i didn't if you had asked me like what um event would give us the platform to talk about these issues that are really important to artists we might not have guessed that it was a taylor swift ticket on sale crashing Ticketmaster. but you know we're ha we're happy with anything that allows us to speak about things that are really important to artists everywhere in a in a way that everybody will listen. And, and you are doing that, and you mentioned there's a passionate fan group, uh, Jordan. I'm curious why you think that. And you know, this this is just a question. I don't know if you know the answer to it, but why aren't more artists speaking out against Ticketmaster or Live Nation? Why does it seem like we're not hearing from you know the Taylor Swifts or Bad Bunnies of the world necessarily? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that I might have like two answers to that one might be that right. i think like culturally artists like historically are not really like empowered to get involved in the business side of their business which is something that clyde and i really are enjoying kind of spreading the awareness and message on of it's okay to be an artist and really be hands-on and care about the business side of your art um and perhaps if more artists were in this that settlement room at the end of the night and we're understanding the way the money was being broken down, they too would be a little bit upset about how uh, the state of the business is kind of being run. Um, that's kind of part one is just maybe like a lack of understanding of ways that these deals are structured um, improperly. And then the second one, which I hope to be uh, wrong, but I think that like there's kind of been this stigma of like fear of retaliation or like not wanting to poke the bear. And I'm hoping that Clyde and I are kind of setting setting an example that by being really like um, deliberate with the wording that of all of our messaging and really not, because again, this is the genuine feeling of it's not a live nation problem. It's not a live nation's the enemy. It's just the industry. So hopefully by artists realizing that we're not actually bashing any specific entity or specific company, um, there's no reason for like any type of retaliation if anything, we're hoping that more um, kind of companies in the industry just step forward and try and do um, a little bit of positive change to make that difference. But so I think that, yeah, we're trying to just set an example that there's not anything to be like scared of. And if you think there is something wrong in the business, it's okay to come forward and say that as long as you're not, unless you really think it, like as long as you're not coming forward and bashing anyone, I think that that's like a totally healthy part of being a cog in an ecosystem is, is yeah. I think it's up. it's the difference between being like inflammatory for the sake of being inflammatory, versus um having a really thoughtful and hopefully um bulletproof is the wrong word, but just putting things out there that are methodically and thoughtfully not only thought through but worded in a way where it's kind of like. I defy any industry force, big or small, to read the words you're saying, and I, and we encourage healthy debate about it. You know, like anyone that disagrees with any of the points we've made, like 
we we welcome a, a healthy debate about it and we're here for that and like i think with that spirit and energy of like uh, trying to start a respectful conversation about these issues like we hope that everyone will come to the table and be ready to have that conversation that's great it, you know it there's something to be said about i i don't know if this is like a newer generational thing but the fact that you all are so involved on the business side and I imagine you're kind of involved in the, the posting of your TikToks, for instance, that go viral and, and that kind of thing. And in some ways, I think that makes you all more accessible too for that conversation. Would you agree that sort of having that social media presence to talk about this it has made it easier or, or made you more visible in the conversation, Jordan? Yeah, I think I think that you're spot on. I mean, as a band and as a small, or as a band since day one, we've kind of, the eight of us that are kind of members of this band have, made the conscious decision to treat this as a young startup with way too many founders and kind of everyone would take on a job within that and really devote their working energy to expanding and growing and obviously in today's day and age a huge part of that is um social media and we have like a great social media team which are just bracy in the band and our management team um being really hands-on and, and trying to follow trends online while maintaining our brand. And I think as you're pointing to, a big part of our brand at this point has become, we are an independent band and we are running the ship ourselves and we're learning how this all works. So we're realizing this is a great opportunity to expand our reach by saying, we love to be the people on TikTok that are sharing the knowledge about how the independent and non-independent music business works so yeah absolutely i think you're spot on i think you're the you all are the first tiktok i kind of ever seen that you know here's a clip of our music and here's a clip of us at the congressional hearing yeah totally. <laughs> i've never i've never quite seen that, that going before. yeah <laughs> yes it's definitely a vibe uh clyde just see into the nitty-gritty for the moment you, you kind of mentioned this earlier about you know merchandise sales and marketing all that kind of how it wraps up into this uh live nature Ticketmaster, the, the whole package um can you is there any numbers you can give us or like sort of a vague idea of how much the artist takes away or doesn't take away in these deals and how much money you might be losing in the process yeah i mean i, I spoke about it in brief terms in the testimony itself and for anyone interested we posted a longer form version of our testimony to our uh instagram at lawrence the band um and of course there's a whole op-ed in the new york times about it but um generally speaking what we found is that we walk away with somewhere between 40 to 50% of the show's gross, but that's based on a gross of the uh, ticket base price. So let's say we're talking about a $30 ticket, which we have chosen. That That's an important distinction. The artist does have a say in what the base price of the ticket is. So let's say our tickets are 30, maybe Taylor Swift's are 500, whatever. Ours are 30 um, right now. And uh, so we would walk away with about $12, that's around 40% of that 30. It's a, it's not like, oh, you get 40%. That's not the deal, but the deal is a little more complicated than that. But that's how typically for us, it shakes out. Um, but then that's to say nothing of the additional ticket master fee, which we do not get a say in setting, nor are we even told what it is. But that's often, let's say, $12 on top of the 30. So the fan that's actually checking out 
on their cart on Ticketmaster is probably paying up $42 for their ticket, and we are receiving 12 But importantly, uh, whereas the settlement sheet that we work on with the venue ends up recouping most of the costs that the uh, venue or the promoter have, um, which are a whole lineage of costs that I can talk through, our costs, which we are responsible for paying for, like our touring crew, accommodations, travel, insurance, production, you know, any number of, you know, so, so many costs, all the costs of putting on a tour for the artist. Those are all not as of yet covered by the $12 that we receive. So then we have to pay all of it out of that. For our band, we end up keeping about 50% of what we walk out of the venue with. So that would be about $6 um, out of a fan's $42 ticket. And again, a lot of other bands that aren't as efficient or creative with how to budget a tour might end up having trouble just breaking even. So that's where we end up. And of course, that's for a, that's not including payments to any of the band members. So that's an eight-piece band. So the margins, the margins are small. And that's why we think if you were to get into a little bit more of the nitty gritty of how that $30 is divided up, um, we think the artist should ultimately walk away with more than 12 out of the 30. And certainly more than 12 out of the 42 when you talk about there being an added $12 fee that we have no say in. Absolutely. And I want to get more into the nitty gritty, but we only have time for a few more questions. So I'll direct right. again to, to y'all's uh, social medias and uh, the, the op-ed, of course. Um, but in, And if we can just find a solution, because that's often, you know, let's talk about the problem. Maybe we can potentially look at the solution here. Jordan, is the solution as simple as lowering fees? I know you guys had a funny tweet. It was like, just lower them. Problem solved. LOL. Uh, is that what you got to do? Or what do you, what would you present as a solution to, I think uh, I you know, something everyone wins go ahead sorry yeah i think that on the consumer side it seems that one of the biggest issues would be solved by lowering fees i think it, like that's definitely an overly an oversimplification lowering fees maybe capping resale margins that you're allowed if you want to resell your ticket um fixing and again um mr Bergtold of live nation was talking a lot about how bots were getting involved like figuring out a way to not get bots and involved. Those all seem to be the solutions on the consumer side. Um, on the artist side, yeah, sure. I think, um, and this is kind of bouncing off of what Clyde was saying, another thing that we would love to see, which seems that companies like Live Nation can snap their finger and make happen, is just better accounting and more transparent accounting at the end of the night. They, um, and again, not to get super nitty gritty, a lot of the fees that we're being charged for are kind of lumped into these opaque terms like house nut. And we're like, oh, well, what is that? How are you saying the show's not making money when you have this vague term that costs thousands and thousands of dollars? So I think um, if if Live Nation were to say, okay, we're gonna actually provide full 100% clear tra um, transparent accounting, now you'll know if the deals are actually fair. That's one, capping the fees on merch is another, maybe sharing revenue of, venue side ancillary fees with artists um, is another. Uh, Clyde and I are kind of working on like that working list of five or six things that if we can make those small solutions, the, the deals would be a little fairer towards artists. And just to jump yeah, in on that, like, there have been a handful of venues that have already come forward both before this testimony, because they were already aware of it, and even since um, talking about 
They're going to stop taking cuts of artists' merch. There are venues that don't charge these, what we might think of as bogus facility fees. And I think like us continuing to celebrate venues that do do those things and encouraging more venues and even big players like Alive Nation to make those broad changes, that'll make a huge difference. So it's safe to say those venues are uh, anti-house nut, or what the term, I believe. Is that right? <laughs> oh, exactly. Have, Clyde, I know you mentioned that, and there's a clip. Can you define house nut for us? I'm still confused on what that fee actually yeah, is. Is that the venue fee? Is <laughs> So are we, yeah. Basically, uh, when you get a settlement sheet at the end of the night, there's a long list of line items that essentially are being charged to the show before anybody makes any money. And one of those is sometimes what you might call a house, what they do call a house nut, which is like a fee that sometimes but not always includes a rolled up amount for things like rent, um, maintenance, cleaning, uh, all kinds of other things. But importantly, things like maintenance, cleaning or facility fees are sometimes also line items as well. So. It's just very, very vague. It's just like one big lumpy fee among other lumpy fees on on this list of line items. It sounds a little bit like when I ordered from Grubhub, but we, we'll get into that another time. Uh, exactly uh, like not in your head. Exactly like what <laughs> yes. fans are seeing. The same thing that's happening to fans where they see a list of fees that are opaque to them for that $12 above the 30. Then we get into the 30 and we get, charged a bunch of kind of opaque fees and that's how we end up with 12 out of the 30 so it's exactly like your grubhub fees or more on on topic it's a lot like your Ticketmaster fees and not and, not to uh, get political not to get too political oh sorry just to add one thing like not to Please, make it ahead. a political thing mm -hmm. but it is interesting that in other industries like grubhub there there are government policies being created that are putting caps on how much can you be charged for a delivery fee how much can a credit card company charge as a merchant fee? So I'm just going to leave that out there. Of course. And uh, it probably was too far off topic, but if you do have a Katan metaphor, you have about 10 seconds. Mm. I don't know if you got anything yeah. for me. I've been thinking about it. The difference between Katan and this whole thing is that in Katan, the whole point is that everybody's against each other. Whereas in this industry, the whole point is that the promoter and the artist are supposed to be true partners and Live Nation would be the first to say that they're an artist first company. So I think that like where it doesn't relate to Catan is that like the whole point is that this is supposed to be two people on the same team aligned in their incentives. And we are trying to make it, we are trying to help make it more in reality that way. Right. It's it's it'd be better if it was uh, compared to a board game. That I forget what they're called. Where everyone wins. One of those games. Cooperative, uh, exactly. And, cooperative. Yeah, board. Exactly. Kind of turn okay. it from like, a non-environment into a cooperative board game. Exactly. <laughs> Got it. Very helpful. Okay, we are way out of time, but I love talking with you all. Uh, we're gonna have to leave it there for now on the co-op board game. Clyde and Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Talk soon. And next, we have, we're excited to have another edition on our next roundtable where we are hear from young reporters in our newsroom. I want to talk about Chat GPT. It's one of the buzziest AI platforms out there. And we're going to bring in some of my much smarter colleagues uh, from the post-technology team and, you know, quite young and youthful looking. We have Drew Harwell here and Tatum, Hard Tatum, excuse me, Tatum Hunter. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Ne 
Never, never an easy shift, but I'm very excited to talk about this topic here. Uh, I've been on ChatGPT kind of all morning. So Drew, I want to start with you. Can you tell us uh, as basic as possible, what does ChatGPT even stand for? What's the GPT in ChatGPT? Uh, some big, long AI phrase that will mean nothing to anybody. The T is for transformer and transformer is a big sort of AI breakthrough that has allowed us to um, train a computer on text to do the same sorts of pattern matching things that we've seen AI do with images. And so effectively what it can do is it's read everything people have typed into the internet over the last couple of years. It's learned to copy you know, our way of speaking, the words we use, sort of learn which words are used together and emulate human speech. So you go onto ChatGPT and you type a prompt or a question or you know, something you want the AI to spit out and it will unveil this very sort of cogent um, form of writing that is really often pretty difficult to tell was made by the computer at all. So you mentioned it takes everything that we've been typing into the internet. Does that mean like tweets, blog pages? Where is the point? It's just every everything that you can reach on Google? Yeah, a lot. Um, these data sets that this AI is trained off of are big, scrapes of the internet. So it's, you know, stuff like movie reviews, entire books, Wikipedia pages, subreddits, you know, discussion boards, um, anything you could have found on the internet. I mean, just just gobs of written material. And, you know, you, you start to wonder what this AI really thinks about a humanity having like seen what we view onto the internet all the time. But, you know, it has really created this, you know, system that can uh, emulate English uh, specifically really well. And, um, you know, so you can tell it to make up a rap song or a 17th century poem, and it will really sort of copy the um, style of that even. And it's really it's pretty amazing. I, I did this morning recently ask it to write a poem for uh, my can of spam, and it did a, a pretty decent job. I think I could have done better, but it was very impressive. Uh, that's one of the fun uses of it, but obviously there's some concerns over this. It's revolutionary technology, and anytime there's something this big, it's like, well, what does that mean? What's the danger? But on the positive side, Tatum, is there an asset? What is the greatest asset, rather, in leveraging this technology? Uh, I guess it's a time saver. Um, you know, I, I, actually, there's two sides to this coin, in my opinion. One is the kind of pragmatic side in that um, if you do a lot of rote communication, um, if you um, maybe struggle with written or spoken language, then this, this could be a really big deal. Um, also, it turns search results into something more conversational, um, which is really novel and it's exciting. And then the other side of that coin in terms of like what, what is a boon of the public availability of ChatGPT um, might be that it gives people the opportunity to interact with a really you know bleeding edge software in a more um, interactive way than they have before. Um, obviously, AI is going to affect our lives and oftentimes those software conversations are kind of like floating above the head of normal people in their normal lives, um, you know, until it gets packaged into some app that they, uh, you know, have a kind of shallow interaction with. So to me, it's also really exciting to see people play and create um, and have this curiosity about, you know, how is this working and how can I control it and understand it better? I noticed one function is, is you can look at the code itself when you type something in. Uh, is that something, is that kind of created there for people who, 
other people who understand how to code, not myself, uh, and can develop the, the app further? What's the idea there where they're sort of sharing that, that code? So ChatGPT will be an API, and what that means is it's, it's, it's almost like you can plug your app into this API to say, I'd like to take advantage of this. So, you know, maybe for transparency, the name of the company is OpenAI after all, and they claim that they want this technology to be accessible and understandable. Um, and then also people can fold it into their own app. So, you know, let's say um, if I were making a, um, you know, app that's going to, um, answer people's customer service questions. Maybe I would want to plug in to uh, chat GPT. Got it. Okay. Uh, so part of, you know, if we have these customer service questions, we have all these things that we're using it for, obviously the next step is, well, is there regulation? Uh, Drew, I know legislators have been talking about regulating artificial intelligence in some way, but how do you even begin to do that? What, where does that start? Where does it end? What, where do you, where do you just, uh, what, what laws do you start to write up for that? Yeah, uh, we'll see, right? We, so we don't really have any laws around um, AI. We have very few laws around tech in America to begin with. Like we don't have a comprehensive data privacy law to like protect our, you know, security when we go online. So um, uh, with AI, especially, there are so many um, angles to it. You know, there's like facial recognition as it's used by police in a criminal justice way. There's AI used to find new drugs or, you know, do healthcare related activities, or in this way, it's, you know, making new writing and new music. Um, so there are all of these different ways that it should be regulated, ways that it could go wrong and affect people's lives. And we don't really have a good sort of framework for what that would look like in a regulatory way. We don't have Congress like passing giant bills to you know, mandate how AI should be designed and tested and audited. So you're seeing some, you know, basic proposals tackle some of these pieces like facial recognition. And you're seeing, you know, researchers and federal agencies offer things like blueprints and frameworks for what AI laws should look like. But the speed with which Congress is moving on AI regulation is so, so slow. And the actual development of this tech and the way it's really progressing over even a matter of months is so fast. So there's a huge sort of gap there um, and there's a potential for risk. Yeah, it does seem like the uh, the pace of people using it and developing it is, is maybe as per usual, a little bit faster than uh, legislation catching up with it. Um, Tatum, I've used uh, your work many times in TikToks we do for the Washington Post, so thank you for that. Uh, and I may use a little bit of your answer here <laughs> to help me understand a follow-up TikTok I've been wanting to make for a very long time about how uh, you know some students are using this software to basically submit work that isn't their own. And teachers and professors understandably have uh, a lot of uh, concerns about that. Can you talk us through the concerns, what they mean, and what uh, is being done to maybe address this by teachers and professors? Yeah, so um, if you have been in school anytime recently, you know, you might uh, know that your teachers can run your essays through um, the software called uh, Turnitin, and it's meant to detect plagiarism, which it, it effectually is like 
a copy paste from somewhere on the internet, maybe um, a different academic paper or Wikipedia article. And the challenge that ChatGPT is presenting is that it's not a copy paste. It's gen it's it's generative AI making new text. So while it is based on this kind of you know collective internet knowledge, it's this mashup of things that it's read on the internet. It might be a novel combination of words. And so the concern um, and people and you know professors are already reporting. Um, you know, I suspect that this low performing student has used ChatGPT because this essay is so excellent. Um, and there was even one case of it, you know, passing a law school exam um, or, you know, performing on par with what a student could perform based on the nature of the questions. So uh, Turnitin is claiming that it will be able to detect ChatGPT, chat but as always, it'll kind of be this arms race between students and teachers. Um, and ChatGPT is certainly not the beginning of that challenge. Absolutely. I, I did type in also this morning. I, clearly, I spent a lot of time on this, uh, an essay for Of Mice and Men, and it was okay. But it, I, I wondered if a teacher would have uh, detected that when I was back in high school. Um, Drew, uh, I want to talk a little bit about a recent announcement from BuzzFeed that they're going to use ChatGPT to help write quizzes. As someone who used to do listicles in a previous life, uh, I feel a little hurt by this, that they're taking that job away. Uh, is this just the tipping point of major companies embracing artificial intelligence? intelligence excuse me. Totally, right? Like AI, you don't have to pay a wage, it doesn't need a break, it doesn't go on vacation. Um, and it's pretty good, right? Like it's not perfect, like you said. I mean, you can put some prompts into the system and it spits out. Often what I'll find is something kind of like banal, a little like predictable. It doesn't have that like edge of human writing. I mean, I get paid to write words for a living, so maybe I'm biased, but I do think you're going to see companies try and use this, if not to entirely supplant humans, than to you know um, help them right like and BuzzFeed has talked about well we're going to use this as sort of like um, an inspiration sort of like rocket fuel for people who can you know post more things more quickly use the you know ideas that may come across from this AI and help personalize this to people so I think there is something exciting there I'm trying not to like close the door on it entirely but you've also seen you know places like CNET which was a big tech you know, website uh, for many years. And the big scandal with them has been that they have been using sort of AI to write, update, and edit um, stories in real time, including like financial advice. And these columns were, you know, because they were written by AI, getting a lot wrong. And you weren't really finding out that these AI generated pieces were totally factually inaccurate until humans were actually going back and sort of checking the facts. And you know, AI too, because it's trained on what we've all written on the internet, um, the fear is like plagiarism, right? I mean, you know, uh, like Tatum was talking about, these things end up sort of copying in a, a sort of an indirect way what they've seen on the internet before. So, you know, they're kind of taking the ideas that people have already written, not really understanding what they're saying, but still sort of involving that in the writing. So I think these are all kind of like risk factors. I'm not going to say AI is going to go away entirely or that human writing is going to go away, but I think it raises a bunch of issues that we're really just starting to reckon with now. Yeah, of course, plagiarism is a, is a huge a part of journalism that people always fear and that you want to stay away from. And then another part that's much more recent and much more present, in my mind anyway, is misinformation. And so, Tatum, I want to talk a little bit about Dolly, which is the text-to-image platform. Um, what are what are the potential harms there? Uh, I 
personally feel like I could see someone generating an image or even a video that's just completely faked and convinces people that something has happened somewhere around the world. Do you see something like that happening eventually? I think that the ability to recreate, yeah, the faces of politicians or other um, or other public figures is a big risk um, with with generative image models like Dolly or you know other deep fake video software that just hasn't received the same uh, excitement or name recognition that Dolly has. Um, you know, one big risk that uh, that I'm interested in is the ability to you know put in images of people who are not yourself including children um you know experts have noticed that the models tend to sexualize images um so of course there's all of this uh, potential for you know reputational damage fake revenge porn harassment um extortion that uh that we aren't equipped to deal with because we I, I think it's really obvious that it's hard for us to manage online harassment and misinformation even without tools like this um, it's interesting because bloomberg reported that um, the chinese tech giant uh, baidu is uh, claiming that it's going to roll out uh, a chat gpt like tool as part of its search engine um, and you know, one of the things that I cautioned readers is using ChatGPT as a search engine because the results are so often wrong. Because um, people on the internet are often wrong. So uh, I think that the kind of the tendrils of all the ways that this could go awry, like, are many. Right. Absolutely. And personally, I've never been wrong on the internet, not once. Uh, Drew, really quick before we wrap this up, and anyone fact checks that, yeah. Um, is there, to end up maybe on a positive note here, is there a way that this technology could be used to uh, weed out misinformation? Is there something, you know, almost as a weapon to help us in finding everything that's spreading constantly online that's not true? Yeah, you know, I think it could be a cool kind of classroom tool. Uh, one way I've heard it being used is like, if you're in a class and you're using ChatGPT and you have like a really basic like mundane question that you don't want to stop the teacher to ask about, you could use ChatGPT almost like a search engine to say like, you know, I've seen this used in sort of com computer programming. What does this piece of code do? What should I be writing here? And the system will spit something back out. I think that's cool, right? That's like a way that we can have this conversation going that's not reliant on search engines and Google, which can sort of get it wrong too. But I will say, you know, not to, put a negative spin on this positive ender, but like the way that this AI gets it wrong is really interesting. Like, and if you if you really look at the results, you find like, it's not just that it gets one fact wrong and then everything else, right? It'll make up entire like sources. It'll say like it's citing a book that doesn't exist because it's really just copying like the patterns of syntax that we use in conversation. So you don't even really, it's written so elegantly that you really don't even know that what you're looking at is just totally bogus. So I think it's honestly, for misinfo, it, it presents like a way to explore our world and, you know, invent these things, be creative. But I think the real damage is that we don't even know if what we're looking at is BS or actually genuine. Well, no problem with putting a negative spin on it because it's a positive experience talking to you all. Drew, Tatum, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining me on Washington Post Live. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.